Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Chris Lance. Chris is a senior director at UNA, a group purchasing organization, and the home of the Sourcing Hero. Chris has experience in multiple industries, but a particular focus in healthcare and technology. I also have it on good authority that he's an optimist with a raincoat, so we'll have to ask him more about that. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for being here with me on the Sourcing Hero. Hey, Kelly. Happy to be here. So I shared a very high-level overview of your background, but for folks that haven't met you or worked with you before, can you share a little bit more detail about your professional experience? Yeah. So right right out of college, actually, I you know I went into the retail pharmacy world. Um, that was exciting. I could probably write a book on that. Um, <laughs> if you fa- fast for- fast forward a little bit. Um, I did find myself in the healthcare IT uh, industry here in in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and then just under a decade, maybe about seven, eight years um, after that, I, I found myself where everything kind of came full circle was in in supply chain, um, and so that's where I am today here uh, here at Una. So, so I tease about your bio on the site. You guys actually have really fun individual bios up on the Una website. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're an optimist with a raincoat. So tell me about the the backstory or the the origin of that tagline. Well, it's just I, I tend to play devil's advocate. And so while I'm always seeking the silver lining, if if the conversation is silver lined, I'm I'm also, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Um so uh, really just preparing for the worst, but also hoping for the best kind of in, in all facets of my life, really. so. Well, and I think that mindset is actually going to help us quite a bit as we move into the primary topic that we had planned to discuss today. And this is something that, you know, it's been exciting and I'll do air quotes, which is terrible for podcasting, but it's been a very exciting time to be in supply chain for the last couple of years um, it's been a lot of disruption, but also a ton of opportunity to help people understand why we're important and, and what we do. Um, and perhaps nowhere else has it been more obvious or evident is in the area of food shortages. Um, and I think this is an interesting topic because it connects together so many of the different things that we track and follow as professionals. Um, so knowing that you follow this also, what would you say are some of the macro events that might serve as an indication that some of the spot food shortages that we've seen over the last couple of years are both systemic and are probably going to be an ongoing challenge? Yeah, you know, I, I think first thing that I like about what you said, Kelly, is that you said macro events as in plural, because mm. I, while I'm not crazy about you know, the buzzword, but it's seemingly more and more we're hearing, you know, the perfect storm, right? And, and what does that mean for supply chain? 
and really, I think that's that's kind of what you know, I, at least me, you know, or we are kind of expecting or hearing, um, kind of towards I would say, you know, end of summer, start of this fall. Not that <laughs> end of August that doesn't mean the sky is on fire, but you know, that's I, I think it's the perfect the perfect storm, right? So I was reading an article not not too long ago. Um, I would say a week or two that actually explicitly gave a timeline on 10 weeks of wheat supply left globally. Wow. And that I was kind of jarring to me. And then I, you know, again, played devil's advocate and started thinking, well, you know, but they'll plant more wheat, you know, and they'll have more crops. And then I, I started doing some research and it was, well, hang on a second. There's some geopolitical issues going on overseas, overseas that are actually going to impact about a third of wheat exports on a global scale. And so then I, I was like, it kind of scratched my head and started, well, okay, that, that could be an issue. And yeah. started looking at, well, India now as, you know, they're, they're stopping some of their exports on, on specific items. And so getting outside of wheat, I just started looking at food in general. And it was, you know, I think there's to date, I think this started in 2021, but over 30 million chickens because I guess there's a bird flu, you know, that's kind of been going around. And so when you look at things like that are specifically tied to food on top of maybe just the cost of diesel or sunflower oil being tougher to come by because of geopolitical issues, it really does make for kind of the perfect storm. And, you know, with supply chain already kind of being on its heels, I would say from the last two years, it's just, it's not necessarily a good indicator on what that means, you know, as far as food availability. Yeah. Now we've spoken very macro, right? But for people that are listening in that want to start to think themselves, okay, where am I likely to see the impact of this? When we think about the different involved supply chains, are you thinking grocery stores? Is it more wholesale? Are we going to see this changing what's happening in restaurants, whether it's product availability or the prices we pay? Um, where are you expecting that us as private individuals are actually going to start to see the impact of all these macro events? Yes. So that's a, that's a really good question, right? Because for me, with something as essential as food, it's almost every single one of those categories. Now, from, you know, I guess I would say restaurants, are, are they really going to go without? That's That's not likely, mm-hmm. right? But where you would probably notice it would be on the costs, um, because that that's a, for all intensive purposes a business. So whether it's indirect, direct spend, I mean they're they're going to pay what they need to pay, but those prices are oftentimes passed down not not out of greed, but simply because they have to, right? And then when you start looking at you know retail or like grocery retail, um, that's where I think kind of the the general public who's maybe further outside of supply chain would really start to say, huh. Well, my my favorite X isn't here, so I need to buy this instead. And my goodness, it's it went up fifty percent in, in cost. That's that's more of what I think is, you know, to be expected. Um, not so much a catastrophic event, so much as it's not so easy to ignore the reality that things aren't necessarily as available as they were before. Well, and it's interesting too. So I worked in grocery retail, and I think. We're also accustomed to both restaurants and and grocery stores just sort of operating and having what we want them to have. Mm -hmm. And people don't often stop to think just how narrow the margins are. In a a grocery store, it can be on some products under a percent. There are certainly products, we sometimes talk about turkeys at Thanksgiving, 
and they're sold at a loss. So I think your point about this is not a matter of greed is an important one. There is no buffer to absorb significant, whether it's a fuel increase to transport things to the stores or whether it is actually the food product going up. That buffer is simply not there. And so I think you're probably right. That's where people are going to start to see this hitting them in their wallet, hitting the choices that they make, um, changing their actual consumer behaviors, which is interesting. Mm, very much so. Yeah. Now, hopefully it doesn't come to this, but we talked about being optimistic, but also maybe planning for a worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. With something as large as food supply, especially worldwide, what might a worst case scenario look like? Well, you know, so a worst a worst case scenario, it's on this topic, it's it's pretty dark. You know, I mean, I think worst case scenario, really what we would see is probably is not just uh, an annoyance or a frustration, but actual famine. Um, now, I think that also will what will come into play there um, or maybe the economic health of specific countries. Right. But when 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 the belt starts getting tighter and you need to look at savings, the first thing that stops is usually things like donations. And so if you look at maybe roughly 40 countries, right, that are already experiencing famine or knocking on the door of it, without those donations, I mean, it, it could go to a pretty dark place. Now, again, like I was saying before, I don't think that, oh, well, August is here, the sky is on fire, Chris was wrong. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's more of the fact that it can't, it can't be ignored. Um, I think worst case scenario... Uh, a lot of a lot of the countries overseas will they may they may see I don't want to say population decreases but that's <laughs> inevitably what ends up happening in a famine. So I think to the best of everybody's ability, taking it seriously, uh, the lack of food availability seriously would be in their best interest. Because the good thing about food, or, or maybe we'll call it an investment or forecasting and looking ahead, is if if you're wrong, you can you can eat your mistake. Whereas if you're wrong focusing the other direction or you don't necessarily take this into consideration, what are you going to do? Right. So worst case scenario, it gets pretty dark, but I'm, you know, I, I would trust the, you know, maybe the powers that be and people using sound judgment to kind of plan for some of those things. Yeah. Now the good news is we're not there yet. So, right. you know, it's on the horizon. We're not hundred percent sure where some of these issues are, are looming, but we do have some advance notice. And so what would might be some of the strategies that procurement supply chain professionals, the companies that they work for, what are some options that they can take specifically around working with suppliers and managing inventory and all of that to protect themselves against shortages and disruption? Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I like that. I like that question coming out of the, okay, so what's the worst that could happen? So kind of a the light at the end of the tunnel that's not a freight train. I, you know, I I could tell you our sister company, um, CCPA, they are experts in the food space and in that in that industry. Um, some of the things that I know they've been telling is, which is a lot of what we've just kind of learned general practice, you know, I, through the last two years, right? Um, but maybe splitting volume or being uh, di diversifying across suppliers or, or distributors. 
Um, I know everybody typically has like at least, you know, a couple favorites they would prefer to work with. But when it comes down to running the business, making sure that you have multiple areas or relationships that you can tap into to ensure that you get the product that you need. Um, another suggestion I've heard that they've made um, in on the food front would be sourcing locally, you know, local suppliers, other small and medium businesses um, that are that are that do still have their doors open um, and forming partnerships there. Um, but I would say if, you know, if you have the capital, um, or if you're one of those organizations who's, who's lucky or blessed enough to, to make, make a decision like this, I would say what it's really going to come down to is inventory management. Um, if you're able to order ahead, um, if you're able to store, um, and I, I don't mean long-term survival foods, right? We would be talking about food service management groups. So fresh foods, but can you store chicken? Can it be frozen? Um, you know, different things like that. Uh, those are a lot of the strategies that we've been seeing, you know, put in place to prevent uh, the disruptions that we've seen in the past, um, which would be very similar to what we potentially are expecting, you know, for the future. And it does feel like we've been stuck in a mm. disruptive pattern for a while now, right? And I'll speak for myself. I think I'm through this phase now, but for a little while I was in a phase where I would think, okay, just hang on, hang on till it all goes back to normal. And with every month, and now we're at the point where we can say with every year that goes by, I think to myself more and more, I think it's time to stop trying to hold on until mm-hmm. things go back to normal. And it's really more about accepting we're in long-term, dis- you know, sustained disruptive times, and we need to adjust to it. So when you think about all the different types of disruptions, we've talked a little bit about perfect storm. What are the things that companies should be evaluating and actually trying to bake into their processes? So instead of saying, okay, what can I do to handle this for 30 days or six months, instead of it being a short-term thing, what are some alterations to process system planning habits where it actually will help them prepare and be more aware of potential for disruption because if it's not this, it's going to be the next thing, something else we're not even watching for yet. To what extent should we systematize our ability to respond to and and try to stave off these disruptions? Yeah. So I think um, the way you said it at the beginning of your question was actually perfect. And it's um, almost, it's, it's kind of like we need to start being comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, and almost, you know, instead of, you know, whiteboarding out what a strategy would be and everybody high-fiving that, you know, this is how it's going to be, this is how it's going to play out. I, I think that we need to do, and I think this applies to, to business, not just supply chain, but I think we need to do a better job at playing devil's advocate and saying what could go wrong here and what's the likelihood that it does. And and if it does, what what do we do about that? And I think also not being naive to the fact on, you know, you start talking about uh, company A and and supplier relationships and how important how important how important some of those partnerships actually are. Um, if it's if you're chasing this inevitable race to the bottom, right? What what processes? What strategies? What things are we doing in procurement that actually may have hurt our own selves a year and a half down the road? Um, so again, I. I, I I feel like I'm sounding like a broken record, but it's, it's similar to the to the last question where it's you need need to be more diversified, um, need to be more self reliant as far as it goes 
um, in, in expecting relief or assistance or aid. Um, you know, if you think that something could go wrong, plan that it does. And then what does that do to your current strategies? And then have that plan B, not as a soft plan B, but as true actionable steps that you can do uh, from a supply chain or a business perspective. Now, Chris, we've had a, a heavy focus, important conversation, right? And I think these are the kinds of meaty issues that people in our profession, we have to be able to handle because whether it's the disruption that we're trying to prevent that will allow food to get to families, or whether it's, as you suggested, making the decision to partner with a local supplier, even if they're smaller, that could be the kind of decision that not only changes the trajectory of your business, but creates a brand new sphere of opportunity for that local company and the people that they employ. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's also a lot of upside here. And I think it provides a nice transition to the question that I actually ask everybody that joins me here on The Sourcing Hero, and you're getting a first opportunity to answer this. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you two options, and it's entirely up to you. Either how would you define a sourcing hero, or how would you define what heroism looks like in a business context? Mm. Well... So I would say, so to me, kind of heroism in, in a business context would be one or a, a person or an individual who has a, a tremendous track record of success and achievement, but that's not kind of where their story ends. I would say that they're actually known for helping others and their achievements. Uh, and kind of, and the reason I say that is because at least all the superheroes that were my favorites growing up, there was always a, a theme of humility. Um, and I think that's, that's we, we could all in the world use a little bit more of that. But to me, a hero, a hero in business is someone who lifts those around them and elevates everybody around them. It's not just about their successes. And isn't it awesome that as procurement and supply chain professionals, even the suppliers that we partner with, it's amazing that if you really boil it down to the core of what we do, every single day we come to work and we find some way to lift other people and mm -hmm. create opportunities and operate efficiently. Um, it's, it's, we're very lucky to be in the line of work that we're in. Um, I, would, I would agree. I would agree. I would say before, <laughs> before 2019, I, I don't know that I would have really ever stopped to pause and, and think mm -hmm. about the inner workings of supply chain. Whereas these days you could almost draw any headline, either a straight or a dotted line. Um, so it's every day is an, an adventure. Uh, sometimes it's more <laughs> painful than others, but it's definitely an adventure. That is very true. Well, Chris, for anybody that has listened in that would like to reach out and get to know you better, uh, maybe join you for an adventure even, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, so but I'm on LinkedIn, so it would just be uh, Chris Lance on LinkedIn, uh, or you could email me directly. My, my work email is just Chris, so K-R-I-S at una, U-N-A dot com. Um, those would be the best places, but uh, you can also check out our website, una.com. I think there's a profile with uh, my, my clever quote of being an optimist with a raincoat. Um, and you, you can get in touch with me that way too. That is awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on The Sourcing Hero. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sourcing Hero podcast. 
Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.